0: Kids, you can be dismissed. Thank you for being in here. Um, and you can head back to your seat, guys. And want to do a couple announcements prior to getting into the Word of God. Um, first is, today is actually the fifth anniversary of our merger. So, five years ago today, we handed out these little magnets And for you guys who are here, your magnets are cracked and falling off your vehicles. So we have more magnets. So if you've joined over the last five years, we have magnets in the lobby. If you um, want a new one, you can have one for your vehicles. Here's the caveat. If you're a bad driver, (laughs) do not, pointing out parents, wow. No (laughs) magnet for you. Put it on your refrigerator. Is good. You can drive your refrigerator just fine. Please don't put it on your car if you're a bad driver. But I know no one in here is, so we're going to move on. Second announcement next week, we're doing our outdoor Easter. Uh, worship gathering, which we're really excited about. So we'll be outside in the parking lot, bring your uh, chairs, your blankets, whatever you want to sit on. We'll have some extra chairs and stuff, but if you bring your own, that will really help. Uh, We're going to have a baptism. So we have some folks who are going to share their baptism testimonies. We'll be doing a baptism together, sing together, just worship the Lord together on Resurrection Sunday. So we're super excited about that. All right, open your Bibles to Joshua as we continue our series in the book of Joshua, starting at chapter 10 today. Joshua chapter 10. Recently, I was helping one of my kids with a report on Muhammad Ali. I'm not a fan of his theology or his morality, and actually, as I was helping with the report, I grew increasingly concerned (laughs) because I was like, how many wives did this guy have? Like, it was... it was concerning. But it was fascinating in learning about Muhammad Ali and some of his boxing skills and even watching a video of Ali's uh, defensive strategy in boxing. He actually did not put up his hands to block. Well, most boxers, they're like this, covering their face. Ali's like this, hands down here. You don't do that. That's not wise in boxing. But Ali, as he fought, guys would like, you know, you see the face exposed, you're a boxer, you're going for it. And he would just do whoop, 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 and just like make the other boxers look silly and just wear themselves out. And then he would just go in and pummel them. I've watched enough Rocky movies and Creed movies to know that's not the way you're supposed to fight. You're supposed to put your hands up or you're going to get clocked. As we enter Joshua chapter 10, we find Israel entering a battle with five kingdoms. And at first instinct, as I read it, I'm like, that's not a good idea. Like, that's, that's not how you fight. You don't go against five armies at one time. But it's not Israel who is in the ring. It is Yahweh. And you can take swing after swing at Yahweh all day long, and you're going to end up looking very foolish. Look at Joshua chapter 10, starting at verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhai, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand for from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all... The kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horn and struck them as far as Azekah Ezek- uh, and Makeda. Verse 11 And they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horn. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as. As Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said, in the sight of Israel, "Son stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon." And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Before we dive into this text, let me tell you where we're going. We're going to take a large chunk of this text in Joshua today. We are going to cover chapters 10, 11, and 12 today. Three chapters. So I hope you packed your lunch. I'm just kidding. Joshua, let me kind of go back to where we've been though, because the first Nine to ten chapters of Joshua are very slow. There's a lot of details in them. So what we've seen so far is that Joshua is to be strong and courageous. The Israelites cross the Jordan. They enter into the Promised Land. They recommit themselves uh, through circumcision and Passover. They conquer Jericho. They eventually, after some time, conquer Ai. And last week we saw the deception of the Gibeonites, who are now the servants But as we hit into chapters 10, 11, and then 12, the narrative starts speeding up. The years start going by faster within the narrative. By the end of chapter 10 into chapter 11, there's summaries of entire battles where we get very little detail. You have battles of the entire southern territory and northern territory of Canaan. The three chapters we're gonna cover are to remind Israel And remind us that the Lord will fight for his people. And the Lord does it over and over again. Israel needs to know this. We need to know this. The Lord will fight for his people. So let's dive into chapter 10, and just note, this first point is the longest point in my message, and the majority of the message is going to be in the first half of chapter 10. So 35 minutes from now, when we're still in chapter 10, and you're like, we got two and a half more chapters, it's okay. Relax. I just want to give you that, that warning. That's where we're going. All right, let's look at the five kingdoms, point number one. It is interesting to consider how the covenant or promise that Israel makes with the Gibeonites in chapter 9 is the impetus of what happens in chapter 10. These five kings of the Amorites hear about Israel taking down Ai, but it seems like what ticks them off the most is that the Gibeonites align with Israel. These Gibeonites are supposed to be Canaanites. They're supposed to be in the land. They're like, whoa, 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 you went with the enemy. And the Gibeonites, according to the text, are warriors, and yet they seem to fear God and understand Yahweh in a similar way to Rahab is what what, um, Samuel was saying last week. So they align with Israel, but at the same time as they align with Israel, they make enemies of the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, uh, Lachish, and Eglon. And just a quick side note, when you align with Yahweh, you do make enemies. When you align with God, the God of the Bible, you make enemies. And so these five Amorite kings try to test Israel's loyalty. They attack Gibeon. So in verse six, we find that Gibeon runs to Joshua for help. And I'm sure there's a temptation here. We don't pick up on that, but, but like Joshua may be thinking, but it doesn't seem like he does. Like you guys deceived us. Like, why the heck would we help you and fight for you? This isn't our battle. This is your battle. But that's not what Joshua does. He honors his word and he holds fast the covenant he made with the Gibeonites. Which is interesting, just the significance of keeping your word. Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Joshua moves quickly. And friends, that's a theme we find with uh, Joshua, his leadership and his obedience. He quickly obeyed when crossing the Jordan. He quickly obeyed when leading the people around Jericho. He quickly obeyed when getting rid of sin in the camp with Achan. Joshua does not wait He goes to obey God as soon as God is saying for him to. He doesn't linger in procrastination. No, he obeys. And in chapter 10, he moves quickly. He does what is supposed to be done without hesitation. Or as I say to my kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. He does not delay obedience. Joshua obeys quickly, travels all night, the text says, to get ready for this battle. In verse eight, God tells Joshua to not fear the five kingdoms. Yahweh was giving these kingdoms into His hands. In Joshua eleven twenty, you can look at that, or we'll have it on the screen if the screen's working. Good, it's working now. I'm sorry for all the things today. That's part of technology. Um, Joshua 20 gives us a commentary on what's going on in this chapter as well as several following chapters. Joshua 11 verse 20 says this, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So much like we saw with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, these guys want to battle Israel, but they're also hardened in their heart to battle Israel by God. And in Joshua chapter 10, verse 10, 11, God sends these hard-hearted kingdoms into panic. God starts throwing down large stones. Look at verse 11. There were more who died because of the hailstones then the sons of Israel killed with the sword. What's the point? The main point. The Lord is the one fighting this battle. The Lord is battling on behalf of his people. Yahweh is coming against the people of Canaan who have rebelled against him, who have offered children as sacrifices to, to their gods, who have been morally corrupt They're the, from the seed of the serpent. That is the corruption that goes against Yahweh, and Yahweh will take it down. God is faithful in judgment. And again, one of the things we've seen with the faithfulness of God in judgment is piles of rocks. see that over and over and over in Joshua. Here's piles of stones, again, showing God's faithfulness. This time it is hailstones coming down on these Amorite kingdoms. And I love how David Jackman sees God's control throughout this text. He says this, the Lord is in control all the way through, even in the details of the events described. One evidence of this is seen in the fact that the huge hailstones were directed upon the enemy and not on the Israelites who were pursuing them. Think about a hailstorm. Have you ever seen, like, the hailstorm's over there, but not over here? And it's like, somehow no Israelites are dying, but all the Amorites are. God throwing down the hailstones. And here's the application Jackman has. We need to constantly relearn that lesson in our lives. Whenever we face situation of danger, difficulty, or complexity, God's back is never turned. Nothing can slip into your life without his knowledge. Nothing can happen to you with his eyes closed. Our God is in control. In this moment, we see God's control in the midst of hailstones. You see other parts of the Bible. Because what I don't want to be saying is, like, God's people are never going to get hurt by hailstones. Like, that's going to happen at some point, right? Or something else. Like, you read in the book of Revelation, we had the Men's Digging Deeper uh, workshop yesterday, which was wonderful. Josh, thank you for leading. Jennifer, thank you for writing the whole thing. Uh, I don't see her. Uh, I think she's in Children's Mystery. Um, but, but one of the things you find in the book of Revelation is, like, we're waiting in the book of Revelation for the full number of God's saints to die. Like, that's not exactly the most encouraging thing. Like, in order for the things to be set course and Jesus to eventually come back, there's going to need to be enough martyrs, is what the text says. And you're like, "Oh, okay. Yet God is in control of that. So those singing around God's throne in the book of Revelation are those who come out of tribulation and trials, those who are killed, beheaded by Babylon. And so when Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God, he's not thinking just theoretically. No, there are people who die for their faith in Jesus. And the Lord is in complete control of the victories of his people and in the martyrdom of his people. The Lord is in complete control of the victories of his people and the martyrdom of his people. Do you believe that? It's what the text of Scripture says. Verses 12 through 15, then pull back and tell us of a miraculous work of the Lord in the midst of the battle. Not only did hailstones take out five kingdoms that w- waged war against Israel, but Joshua asked that the sun be prolonged to shine. The text tells us that God allowed that to happen, yet we really aren't sure what's going on here about, like, the, is the sun stopping? What's going on? And just to let you know, you can read about 15 different commentaries on this, and they'll all say something different. And just to let you know, the smart guys that are writing those that have like PhDs in that, if they don't understand what's going on, I can tell you, you're not and I'm not I'm going to fully know what's going on. But something happened. We can ask the Lord in heaven. But here's some theories. One, the earth may have stopped rotating. Scientifically, we know that would be disaster. But God goes beyond that. He owns science, right? So that might be happened, Or it could be that the sun's light lingered longer. Anybody know how long it takes from the sun to shine to that light come upon earth? Anybody know? Eight minutes and 8.3 minutes. Had to look that one up. There you go. Good job, though. You win a prize. Um, So 8.3 minutes from the the sun's uh, rays to come all the way to hit the earth. So did that go longer? Did that? We don't know. The sun's light could have actually been blocked, that this is almost like the opposite. The day lingered because it was dark with hailstone clouds. And so the way the original Hebrew reads, it may be the sun was shining the whole time, or the sun like was behind the clouds. So it's a little confusing there. Another option is there was a special sign that we don't know about. Uh, it could be that the language was figurative, so the sun stopped in the same way Jesus is the door. Right? So we know Jesus isn't actually a door. There's a, there's a, it's figurative. And then the last theory is that it was a, like a solar eclipse going on. So that would be the darkness instead of the light. We aren't told and we aren't really sure, but that's not even the main point of the text. The point of the text, verse 14, is this. There has been no day like it before or since. It didn't say there's no day like it before or since because of the sun. It says this. When the Lord obeyed the voice of a man and the Lord fought for Israel. That's the point of the text. That the Lord listened to a guy's voice and the Lord fought for Israel. Here's the main point. The Lord listens to the requests of Joshua because there's relationship. And secondly, that God fights for his people. And for the original readers of Joshua, when this was written, there was no day like it before or since. But we know as Scripture continues that there are a lot of days like that. There are a lot of days where God listens to the voice of others. We know the perfect man came to earth, the God-man, and he spoke to the Father and things happen. We know that that, that waters were stilled and storms were stopped. We know that he prays and and he says and commands Lazarus to raise and little girls to raise and sickness to heal. We know the God man speaks and God hears. God has heard man. And we know that God man tells us to speak. Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. And friends, the God who can send hailstones down, shift the sun and stop the Jordan River, loves to hear his people. He loves relationship with his people. It is astounding that God wants to hear. And when the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray, he does not say, nope. He's not interested, guys. Like, just keep it to yourself. Like, just do your thing, but he doesn't want to talk to you. No, he tells them how to pray, how to daily pray, how to daily talk to the Father, worship the Father, petition the Father, request his kingdom to come. God listens to Joshua, and he listens to the better Joshua, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, he listens to the heart of his people who pray. And God fights for Israel. And both of those facts are astounding. Both the listening and the fighting, both of them compel us to trust God, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And friends, note the, the loyalty of God. God is more loyal to his covenant with us than Joshua is loyal to the Gibeonites. God is more eager to help us fight our battles than we are eager to fight them. God is more trustworthy than we can possibly imagine, and God is more eager for a relationship than we are. How do we know that? Look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He came and he fought our worst battle, our biggest enemy, our sin. He fought on the cross, drinking the full cup of wrath that you and I deserve. The sky turned dark as our sins were upon him and wrath was poured out and we were transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, children of light. He took our place. He fought for us and he won. And friends, if you don't know Jesus and his victory, if you don't know Christ as the victorious king, I invite you to turn from your sins and trust Jesus today as your savior We would love for you to get in on this. Be like the Gibeonites who run for refuge. They cry for help. A very real enemy is coming and wants to destroy you. But Christ is the mighty King. He's the shelter in the storm. And He loves to seek and save the lost. Run to Him. Our passage turns from the fight against the five kingdoms to the guys who actually started the fight, the five kings of the Amorites. Point number two is the five kings. Look at verse 16 with me. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, And it was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hiding in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua at the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachash, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening, but at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden them. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day." As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. That passage is graphic. And it gets our attention. I think we're supposed to pick up on Some things and actually feel some disgust as you read. These five kings lead their people into the war. We see that in the first part of chapter 10, and then abandon them. They're hiding, they are cowards. They're hiding and they're seeking to preserve themselves and let their people die. They're the ones who led them into battle. They think the cave will be their refuge and shelter and security, yet the cave is their tomb. Just as a side note, isn't that so true of what people often do in trying to find a refuge and escape from things? Escape to alcohol or drugs or pornography or materialism or gluttony. And the very thing they think they can escape to, it kills them, it hurts them, it harms them. These kings flee to the cave. And it will be their doom and their tomb. I think we also should pick up on Joshua's disgust over these kings. A king who sends his people into battle then runs from the battle and hides in the cave is not strong nor courageous. These guys are brought out of the cave face to the ground in the dust. Feet on their necks of the warriors of Israel, executed probably with a sword and then hung on trees to show that they are cursed, which Scripture says, and so also is anyone who opposes Yahweh. It is graphic and intentionally so. In a day without billboards, this states, do not go against Yahweh or against Yahweh's people. And for us looking forward, it is a foretaste of the weeping and gnashing of teeth of all who oppose the Creator. Friends, hell is not a party. It is a brutal terror. Scripture says there's weeping. There's gnashing of teeth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Joshua is saying, fear God, nations. Fear God, Israel. Jesus is saying, fear God, disciples. Fear God, Israel. It's not the armies of the Amorites or the armies of other enemies, or the armies of your enemy that you need to fear. It's the creator. It's the one who sustains your breath. Are you on his side? Do you know him? Are you in relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ? If not, it should be terrifying to you. And notice... In Joshua 10, 27, we've got another pile of stones. This time, the pile of stones at the cave over the, at these dead kings. More stones of remembrance. We've seen this throughout Joshua almost every week. We saw stones that were brought out of the Jordan to show God's faithfulness. We saw stones in the midst of the Jordan showing God's faithfulness as they come into the promised land. God's faithfulness to bless And then we saw stones of remembrance over Achan and over the king of Ai. And now here with these five kings, and it's God's faithfulness to judge. God is a God of justice and a God of mercy. And what are the people, what are the people to realize? Well, we know with the stones, they're to tell it to the next generation. We've talked about that a lot in the book of Joshua. But what are they to realize from the graphic scene With the kings and their faces to the ground. Verse 25 is important. He says, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. God's people are going to need courage. Jericho, Ai, these five Amorite kingdoms are a small beginning. The people must learn from these battles. They must not fear their enemies. They must fear God. They must be strong and courageous in God alone. They must trust God alone. And so for our final point today, we're going to cover two and a half chapters. Here we go. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of it. But what happens is the text speeds up, and so we're going to speed up. God wants his people to know his faithfulness, and that he fights for his people. God's people must just be willing to obey. So third point today is the conquest. The conquest. So we're going to get a 30,000-foot view of God fighting in Israel's victories. At the end of chapter 10, Joshua actually goes to the kingdoms of of many of the, where the the kings were, like their cities, and he he smites, I just love that word smites, he smites Libna and Lachish and Eglon and Hebron and Debir and Nagab. And then in verse 41, we get this broader look, we're fast forwarding here. It says from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza. He's just taken out All this air. And you might be like, well, I don't really know. What's Kadesh Barnea to Gaza? That's about 40 miles of cities. Just taking them all out. And then verse 42 is important. It says, and Joshua captured all these kings in their lands at one time. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. What's the main point? This is the Lord's battle. Joshua merely needs to obey. Joshua then heads back to Gilgal, which is kind of their base camp at the time. Chapter 11 now has Joshua facing the northern kingdom. So he's already faced the southern kingdom, wiped most of them out. Now he's at the northern kingdom of Canaan. And the northern kings and kingdoms have something that the southern kings and kingdoms don't have. They have horses and chariots. And at that time, that's your nuclear weapon. Like, you have horses and chariots. You have a massive advantage. So it's interesting. The, the warriors get harder. The battles actually are getting more difficult. But, but this is still Yahweh's battle. They need to learn from the previous battles to now trust God in the harder battles. Verse 4 of chapter 11 says that the northern armies are like a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. As I read that, I just, I, I just defaulted to Lord of the Rings, Helm's Deep, just miles of orcs coming against the, the wall of what's the, is that Helm's Deep? What's the name of that? Warmberg? Say it louder. Hornberg? Is that true? Nathan, you're my expert. Yes? He's just like, I'm... I'm not going to be in this, Mike, You're shenanigans. All right, so, uh, so just those orcs just going against and fighting and miles and miles of the enemy marching, but not just marching. They have chariots and horses. But look at chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, What? Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. I'm taking them out, Joshua. So Joshua does just that. If you keep reading the text, Joshua and Israel obey God and move forward, but we learn the whole time again this is the Lord's battle. Then we get to chapter 11, verse 20, which is a massive framework for this. I already read it, but let me read it again. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is not a new commandment. This is a fulfillment of them in the promised land. I would say even going back to Abraham, we see uh, in Genesis, them coming to the promised land. The rest of chapters 11 and then into 12 speak of the magnitude of God's work. And the last words of chapter 11 say this: "And the land had rest from war." And the land had rest." From war, So we'll, as you fast forward, and as we go in the future sermons, we'll see the inheritance being distributed to the Israelites. But we find, if you read in Hebrews chapter 4, the ultimate point of the rest is that God's people uh, will face and, and, and have the ultimate battle with their sin, and that will be done by Christ. And there's a final resting in the king's final victory. So this rest is a partial rest for the land that points to a future rest for God's people. Read Hebrews chapter 4 if you want to get in on that. And then Joshua chapter 12 is basically pulling back and summarizing everything. So what we find is the end of chapter 11 kind of ends the narrative 12 is a summary of where we're going with the inheritance. And then we're going to get into a lot of inheritance stuff in the next time we teach on Joshua, which is not going to be inheritance message on Easter Sunday, just to let you know, because that would be an interesting message. Chapter 12 ends and then goes into chapter 13. In the very first verse of chapter 13, you notice something interesting. Joshua is now an old man. We have fast forwarded a long way. Much time has passed. But the point is this. God has kept his promise. They went throughout the land. They are now in the promised land. So in Joshua chapters 10 through 12, many opponents get in the ring with Yahweh. Kings and nations rage against their creator, and none is ultimately successful. God uses his people for his purposes And he reassures his people all along, over and over in the text you see this, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord was the one fighting for his people. And friends, as we close today, some of us need to be encouraged with this simple yet profound truth. The Lord has fought for you and is fighting for you and will fight for you. Do you believe that? The Lord has fought for you at the cross, taking your worst enemy, sin, if you know him. The Lord is fighting for you to believe, helping you to get away from sin and run toward Christ. And the Lord will fight for you all the way to eternity, to where you'll be with him, secure, no more fighting, perfect rest. Friends, do you know that God is for you? We're going to close today just by having a time of prayer. If you'll stand with me, Sean, you can grab the guitar. That'd be great. And just want to have a time of prayer for those who maybe you're like, man, that it's a simple truth. It doesn't even sound that profound. We've said it 400 times throughout the sermon today. God will fight for you. The Lord fights for you. We've even entitled this whole sermon series based on this. The Lord fights for his people. But you're like, I don't know. Like in your heart right now, you're just like, I'm, ooh, I want to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. Or you're just kind of struggling. Friends, we want God's church to rally around you. If you're kind of in that area right now, you're kind of struggling now, and we want to pray for you. And one of the things we love to do at Risen Hope Church is just pray for those who need prayer. Some weeks it's going to be you, and you're going to raise your hand and be like, I need prayer. Other weeks you're going to be like, I'm good. But you're going to see somebody else, and you're like, I want to pray for them. And so what I want to ask you to do um, in a second, those who want prayer, you can raise your hand. We'll have some folks gather around you to pray. But for those who are praying for folks, ask God what he wants you to share, how he wants you to pray. If there's scripture to share with that person, that God would use the gifts he's given you to encourage that person who needs prayer. So if you um, need prayer today, if you'd slip your hand up and we want to pray for you. Okay, Andrew, Stephanie. Anybody else? All right, Danielle. All right, can we gather around those? And if I missed anybody, so Andrew here, Stephanie here, Danielle there. We rally around them, gather around them. And if you guys feel comfortable sharing what to pray for, you're welcome to share. Um, And we're just going to take some time to pray over our brothers and sisters in Christ um, and love on them with the word. Father, I thank you for your saints gathered around other saints praying, ministering, loving, caring, encouraging. Lord, that's what your word does. It teaches us to love one another and it teaches us your love for us. Lord, you fight for us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have united us to Christ. So you are not distant from these who raised their hands. You are not distant from them. But we're not telling you things as we pray for them, things that you don't already know. So Lord, comfort them, care for them, shepherd them as the great and chief shepherd. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to gather weekend and week out with our church family. Be honored, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me end with a benediction, just speaking the Lord's favor over. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. We will see you guys next week.